You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely. Therefore, the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Business Plan for the Planet podcast, a series centered around ESG insights. In these episodes, you'll hear from experts whose work is at the heart of sustainability-linked trends and opportunities, as well as from businesses that are delivering change for a better future for us all. Join us as we shine a spotlight on their commitment to a sustainable future. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this Chapter Zero session on COP26. And we're going to be hearing about what this means in boardrooms. Um, My name is Emily Farnworth. I'm co-director of the Centre for Climate Engagement, uh, working closely with Chapter Zero to support non-exec directors in in helping them to understand some of the opportunities and challenges that they can bring into the boardroom. I'm joined today by the chair of HSBC, Mark Tucker, and Nicola Brewer, who's a non-executive director on the board of Ibidrola. And we're going to be discussing um, really kind of what uh, boards around the country and, and also around the world should be expecting and hoping for from the upcoming COP. Um, Just for those of you that are not familiar, um, Chapter Zero is working with UK non-exec directors. Um, They have now over 1,700 members um, and looking to really ensure that those non-executive directors have the right tools, the right information, the right support from their peer group that they need to bring the climate action agenda into the boardroom. But the conversation today is very much one of those conversations where we're wanting to really understand the insights from um, boards and as they're thinking about the next stages for planning towards a net zero transition. So thank you again, Mark and Nicola, for joining us. Just before we kind of dig into the questions, just just a reflection. Um, I mean, you are very much both climate champions uh, in your boards. How would you describe yourselves in that role? And Mark, maybe take you first. Emily, thank you. Good to good to be here this morning. We see ourselves that uh, as the board, right across the board, that being a climate champion is essential. And fundamentally, the reason we've Uh, adopted at HSBC a leadership position is because we believe that getting to net zero is is tied to the future of the planet, tied to our clients' futures and and tied to our own future. And and we do want to be successful and we we understand that we need to change, adapt, invest, innovate, uh, and really look to seize the opportunities that, that, that net zero presents. All of our directors understand the importance of climate change and the need for businesses to to drive their own transitions. But they also recognize that, that there's a, a need to, to be up to speed on, on climate issues. And that's an essential part of their role. Uh, and it's needed for them to do their jobs to the best of their abilities. Uh, and as uh, one of the expectations that we have a, of them as an organization. And the other member can not only the non-executive, but clearly for, for, for us, the executive, I think it's it's definitely worth noting that the one of the, the key board champions is our global chief executive, Noel Quinn, who, uh, as well as leading uh, the work on our own net zero ambitions, chairs the financial services group of 11 global banks 
uh, operating under uh, the Sustainable Markets Initiative from uh, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Uh, and this is part of the, the group, the, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero or GFANS. Uh, so not only executive, but non-executive, and, and the whole board see this as a critical to our current and our future. Yeah, such an important thing to connect across the whole board. And Nicola, what's your, what's your perspective as a climate champion on your board? <laughs> Pretty much like Mark and, and HSBC for Iberdrola, um, because it's the world's um, uh, number one producer of wind power. It's absolutely natural for everybody on the board, whether non-exec like me or the executives or indeed the workforce, to feel that they are climate champions. It's absolutely central um, to the strategy and the approach. Um, Before Iberdrola, I was on the board of one of its subsidiaries, Scottish Power, and the role it's playing as a principal partner at COP26 is very much about being a champion outside the boardroom as well as inside, so it's great to be associated with that. I'd add three things, one of which is similar to a point Mark made about um, a responsibility to educate yourself, to make sure you're keeping up with all of the all of the latest trends. I think as a climate uh, change champion, that's really important. So getting your head around not only TCFD, but the um, forthcoming NFRD as well, for example, or the difference between green and blue hydrogen. Um, Secondly, being a really active member, in my case, of Ibadola Sustainable Development Committee. So you get to see and comment on all of the key ESG reports going to the board in in advance. Um, And thirdly, I hope I'm able to make a bit of a contribution because I know something about the COP process from the governmental side. So back in 2001, I was a member of the UK delegation to the COP in Berlin. Thank you both. Well, um, I mean, that tease tees off the first question I was going to ask quite nicely, because it, it is to do with COP26 in November uh, in Glasgow. Um, Mark, to you first, what do you hope will come out of this? And also sort of in the context of the private sector, you know, what will that mean as sort of next step? I mean, uh, clearly, uh, uh, the build up to COP26 has been a, a significant one. And, and I feel and I think... Uh, it's felt widely that there's now a sense of real urgency and the the recent IPPC uh, report sounding the alarm and sounding that alarm even more clearly that time is running out for us to keep up with uh, within 1.5 degrees centigrade of, of warming. And COP26, as, as we know, is, is framed by the the, the so-called race to zero, uh, which means net zero by 2050 and halving global emissions by 2030. And in addition to to the push to see countries align on uh, on these targets, we expect some 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 big announcements on coal, on internal combustion engine phase outs, on carbon markets, on deforestation, all of which will uh, will have a significant effect on on business. The, the, the public private side, I think the most encouraging feature of the upcoming COP, uh, is that it will, will be the first time that the public sector and private sector come together really to to find the solutions that we need to to tackle climate change you know we've seen net zero commitments made by some of the the largest economies largest countries in the world and over 3000 global companies uh, uh, across many different sectors and that's a terrific platform that's a strong platform for us to build on but I think everybody understands, and the IPPC report, I think, uh, 
uh, was was a further alarm to this was that we need to go further and faster. Uh, and for us, the, the last the vast majority of our of our clients want to transition, or at least uh, at the very least understand the need and are starting to to thinking about it. And they recognize that we've reached a tipping point socially, scientifically, politically. And um, we, you know, our job now is to help ensure there's sufficient funding in place. So COP26 is an opportunity to set more ambitious policies in place that will clearly move the needle on, on carbon emissions with every country. This is both developed uh, economies and emerging markets doing it in a way that hasn't been done before and doing it uh, in a way that has global scale. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And I think that sort of point around looking forward to some more ambitious um, commitments and rather, you know, actual policies coming out from government will be really interesting to see. Um, Nicola, from your perspective, what are you hoping to see? Well, totally agree with Mark's stress on urgency. I think it was the UN Secretary General who said that that report that came out in in August was a code red warning. We're actually uh, on track to a 16% increase in carbon emissions by 2030 when we need a 45% decrease. That's pretty stark. I'd like to see some more really concrete, really specific medium term, by which I mean 2030 targets, uh, uh, in addition to the to being really ambitious for, for 2050. I'd like to see more ambition in um, many of the nationally uh, determined contributions from everybody, but from the uh, G20. And I totally agree with what Mark said about this is a public-private partnership. So there are some commitments that non-state actors uh, uh, need to make as well. And one other thing I would add is I'd like to see um, real commitment with deadlines to meeting it for financing, financing for developing countries, maybe even going beyond that a hundred billion dollars that has been talked about before. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's a, you know, so important this urgency piece and this sort of short term goals are becoming more and more important. And and just on that note, um, where do you think it is that the private sector can can move ahead on on some of those short term delivering on some of those short term goals? You know, what what should we'd be expecting to see both from the financing and, and delivery side? And what do you think it's going to really require governments to intervene to help with? Mark, from your perspective on a financing side of things, what's your thoughts on that? Emily, as you say, it's uh, it's pretty significant roles for both the private and, and the public sector. Uh, I think for the private sector side, I mean, the first thing, thing to say is that we're all ultimately responsible for making our own transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's going to do it for us. Uh, and we have to take a country by country, sector by sector and company by company approach to determine, I think, what is both reasonable and achievable while remaining, uh, as, as we've said already, both ambitious and, uh, and uh, science led. And here it it gets complex factors like size, like sector, like ownership, like business model, like current emission levels all come into play and clearly location too. Uh, And, you know, we have a particular uh, focus on some of the emerging markets and emerging markets are on the whole more dependent on fossil fuels in today's energy mix and more vulnerable to to the impacts of climate change. I mean, that's not a, an excuse. We, we, we need to, to be ambitious. And every firm needs to have a climate transition plan aligned to a net zero future or be in the process of preparing one. So the private sector 
significant uh, a significant role. Governments too have a, have a critical role. Uh, they've got to continue to help create the environment to encourage, and I think where necessary, incentivize and ultimately demand change. Uh, and governments have also an important role to play in creating demand signals uh, for new technologies uh, and solutions. Uh, and I think you you know well, Emily, that the UK government and many others have announced the phasing out of the of the ICE of the internal combustion engine. But another example, which I think is uh, is helpful, is requiring airlines to include a percentage of sustainable aviation fuel within their overall fuel mix would help create the demand to enable sustainable fuel refineries to be built. And this itself will help drive technological development. Uh, smart regulation, lastly, is, is also crucial at the macro level. Uh, we've got to get a robust global minimum carbon price uh, that clearly would have a, have a big impact. Uh, and the market still can't price in the negative impact of emissions uh, but getting all countries to agree on this is uh, is enormously challenging. And at a micro level, blended finance is vital. We've got to use uh, public funds on green infrastructure projects. Using them clearly de-risks uh, from the perspective of the private sector and attracts investment. And there's a virtuous investment cycle. And certainly we're working with the Climate Policy Initiative and the OECD to find ways to do this. Lastly, I think we'd want to see governments publish sector transition targets and capacity targets for scaling up low-carbon low solutions, effectively to, to incentivize market action, uh, looking to catalyze the whole transition. Thank you, Mark. And it, I think this point around, you know, there are many things that governments can do beyond just sort of hard regulation. And this point around demand signals and sort of showing transition plans is actually quite helpful to, you know, to sort of for, for companies to plan and and for that to sort of that market signal to be to be given. So uh, that's a really useful point. Um, Nicola, from, from your side, from your perspective, what would you like to add? Well, I'm in violent agreement with all of the points that, that Mark has, has made. Um, I do think that um, looking at this sector by sector is really important. And I think some of the examples Mark gave in the transport sector, transport is responsible for 22% of emissions. Um, and I think uh, that sector and the companies in that sector will be wanting to get really serious about, um, about what they can do. I mean, there's a, there's a whole... There's a lot that business can do for itself, looking at its approach to risk management, strategic integration, um, reporting disclosure, voluntary and mandatory, um, uh, the more difficult area of pre-competitive um, collaboration. There's a lot that they can do. I would say you know, all, all companies need to get their heads around their scope two and three emissions, not just their direct um, emissions. Um, and I heard one investment manager recently talking about the TCFD reports are essentially companies' transition reports. They're not always presented that way, but that's um, essentially one of the one of the tools they can use. Um, I think I think for government, um, uh, I, there are sort of three broad things that the private sector looks for: a stable and predictable policy uh, framework. Uh, a regulatory framework that is absolutely fully aligned um, with the carbon neutral 
goals, and then the kind of demand signals and the investment signals um, that you and Mark were talking about. And I would say, in particular, things like, for example, the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure for um, electric um, vehicles. And then something a little bit more um, specific in terms of government negotiations. Uh, I think at this COP, they really need to conclude the Paris rule book, especially on carbon markets, uh, which Mark, Mark has touched on. Mm, absolutely. Um, well, you've touched on a couple of really important things there, but Mark, I just want to kind of dig in a little bit more to this point around net, net zero transition plans. And from your perspective, and also in the context of, of the conversation going on in the boardroom about sort of risk and opportunity, what's kind of credible for you when you're looking at clients who are presenting some of these plans? Yeah, I mean, I think what is, what is critical here that... Uh, Investment, not divestment, is really key to our to our whole climate plan, uh, and it's it's fundamental that we want to help our clients to transition. Uh, again, uh, as I said earlier, I think it's good for them and, and good for the planet. And if we divest our heavy emitting clients, uh, which we could do, we could it would be the easiest way for us to get to net zero quickly is just divest heavy emitting clients. But doing so would, would, would starve important sectors, geographies, uh, and societies of transition investment or force them to, to look for funding elsewhere. Uh, and elsewhere, maybe uh, uh, those less focused on transition. And effectively, all you're doing is, is brushing the problem under the carpet. So helping our clients transition is the most significant contribution we, we can make to tackling climate change. Uh, effectively helping finance the transition to net zero. And we've we've said publicly that we expect to provide somewhere between 750 billion uh, and a trillion dollars uh, of financing by 2030 to enable this to happen. So we're not just, uh, we're not, these are not just words, we're putting substantial uh, capital and monies behind that. And as I, say, as I said earlier, I think it's important to recognize that uh, HSBC has a huge footprint in in emerging economies, where if you look at the uh, the next three decades, ninety percent of the emissions, nine zero percent of the emissions growth in the next three decades is expected to come from the emerging markets. Mm. And if the world has any chance of not overshooting one point five degrees centigrade, then finance, financing the transition transition at scale in these economies is is key. And what we've done, we've started the process uh, of working with our clients sector by sector on their transition plans. We want to put uh, transition at the forefront of the, of the conversations. We want to develop and help develop tailored uh, financing solutions to accelerate transition. And I think we're not, uh, again, naive in this either, Emily. We, we know this means a transformation of our own organization, our capabilities, our policies, our processes, our culture. Uh, and it's critical that the companies are unable to uh, diversify, their, diversify their business models, move away from carbon towards long-term sustainable and profitable growth uh, in a process that takes significant financial support. Broadly, we're, we're, we're finding our clients are responding well. Uh, and if you look at the first half of 2021, uh, and we're the leading green financer in the world at this point, we helped raise... Uh, in the first half of this year, more green, social, sustainability and sustainability-linked bonds for clients 
than we did in the whole of 2020. So that election is a is a positive one. And these funds pay for green projects, pay for new technologies and initiatives that open up the, the opportunities. We'll continue to increase our portfolio of transition finance uh, with the latest areas in, 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 in the area of nature-based products, which is growing quickly in importance. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, I mean, we are absolutely committed to work with every single one of our clients on their transition journey. But I think it's important to, to say also, without their willingness and without their commitment to transition uh, in a timely manner, we also have to be ready to walk away. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure some of those more difficult conversations are going to, you know, going to be start facing as we get closer to 2030 as well. Um, Nicola, kind of almost sort of on the other side of the end of the the equation, if you like, of an organisation providing information and data to in financial institutions. How do you see sort of this increased need to provide disclosure, to provide sort of plans um, on transition to your financial services providers? I think it's I think it's absolutely critical. Um, uh, Ibadola was an early adopter of, of TCFD and reports against it and indeed against uh, impact on the SDGs um, r- routinely um, and in an integrated way, which is really important. Um, I think, you know, you, you measure what matters to you and then when you've measured it, you can manage it. And in the context that we talked about um, urgency, you can manage it more quickly. So not only do you have a transition plan, but that you can um, uh, implement it uh, more urgently. So when Ibadrola states that it's going to reduce its global CO2 emissions intensity by 73% by 2030, as a non-executive, because I see the metrics, I have confidence that it is going to deliver that. And it's that kind of um, uh, ambitious but um, uh, measurable and managed uh, targets that you, you need to see. I think that the move from uh, voluntary to mandatory reporting is important and going to continue. Um, I think that if companies don't provide the data themselves, they'll find that investors are starting to estimate their ESG performance for themselves, so much better for the company to do it. Um, And I think finally, that financial disclosure is a really helpful way, not only of quantifying climate-related risks, in a financial way that companies are used to, the kind of data they're used to, but applied in a different way. But it will also help to quantify uh, climate-related opportunities. Uh, And I think that's really important because because the kinds of financial disclosure that are uh, increasingly being used are a new way of looking at value and value creation. Yeah, no, it's a really important piece. And both of the organisations that you're, you're kind of here to sort of talk about today you know, are quite enlightened, and I would say probably in a leadership position on, on much of this. What have you seen kind of evolve in the boardroom to kind of get to this stage? What, what do you, you know, what, what are the, some of the conversations that have been happening? Well, I mean, with experience on other boards I've, I've sat on and being able to contrast it with, for example, uh, Ibudrola, where, you know, 20 years ago it got that electrification was the way forward and increased use of renewables and huge investment and continuing investment in both onshore and offshore wind, for example. Um, Comparing that with other companies, which are perhaps their business model was based on the internal combustion engine and uh, coming to terms with the fact that a transition plan is a radical look 
you know, you've got to unpick every element of the of, of the business model. Um, it, I think you play a role as a climate change champion in a slightly different way, depending on which sector you're in and what stage of the journey that company's uh, company's at. Yeah, well, you, you just touched on, Mark, I'll come to you with this question. You touched on this point around the fact that some businesses have got more challenging business models yeah. and have, you know, more of a more of a leap to make in terms of a net zero. I mean, Mark, you know, what, what have you seen in, in your own, in the, in the organizations that you've sort of sat on um, boards, but also maybe some of the observations of the clients that you're working with? What does the boardroom ha- conversation have to look like when there's a very difficult conversation about a change in business model? I mean, I think the whole area, uh, Emily, is, of ESG has uh, has developed rapidly and significantly over recent years, and uh, and I think all of this uh, is recognised by stakeholders as key elements and risk for managing the business. So, for us, sustainability isn't a new focus at, at HSBC. We put significant effort into building a strong reputation in sustainable finance over the last decade, uh, but we we need to do more. We know we're not doing enough, and and. I think the climate ambitions we announced uh, uh, last year, last October, were an indication of a need to go further. And the board was deeply involved in in developing and ultimately approving that plan, uh, which goes right to the heart of our of our strategy. Uh, again, you know, in the first half of this year, to towards the the AGM, we were involved, and the board was also critically involved in engaging with shareholders about how we intended to meet that target. Uh, and it ended uh, uh, and culminated in putting a, a climate re- resolution to our AGM in May, uh, which was backed by 99.7% of shareholders. So again, uh, a strong, strong support. These com- discussions continue, and, and we, we clearly hold uh, ourselves to to account for making progress. And the need for all of us to move from ambition to action is is clear. You know, we, we actively discuss the growing body of targets, how this is being translated into action plans to achieve, uh, ensure achieve uh, against the demanding timescales. At the same time, we're having conversations with regulators who want to know about our climate risk exposure today uh, in this, in the context of, of stress testing within different jurisdictions. But fundamentally for us, meeting our ambition means embedding climate into each part of our business. This is not a an added extra. It's fundamental and embedded in, in, in the business from product development to wealth to asset management. Uh, and we've got to be comfortable in assessing business models on their contribution to, to, to supporting this in a, uh, in a new world. And all of this at uh, the board, and uh, I'm sure Nicola finds the same, all of this helps to build new skills, new capabilities and innovation in the company, but on the board as well. Mm, absolutely. You both referenced the fact that um, both HSBC and Ibadrola have been looking at this for a long, long time. Um, and so in terms of some of these sort of structural changes to the board, you know, committees, particular roles on boards, incentives i mean what things have you found that have worked quite well that you would sort of you know if, if there's a, an organization um you know having this conversation in the boardroom maybe not for the first time but in, at an early stage in the journey what, what would some of the advice be from from your perspective as to what's worked quite well uh maybe nicola t first yeah well look, look at the, the the terms of reference and the remit of the relevant sub board committee so the Sustainable Development Committee at um, Iberdrola has got a very wide remit. Every time I look at it again, I'm 
gives me a bit of a jolt to realize how wide the responsibility is. Um, uh, and I think in some, some boards um, in other companies might treat sustainability as a whole board responsibility, um, but worth looking at the sub-board committees and their, and their remits. One of the recent changes that um, Eva Droller, something similar to what Mark was saying about, um, uh, about HSBC and its latest AGM, um, we've just amended our Articles of Association to strengthen the climate response, the responsibility for climate governance uh, of, of the board. Uh, it's now explicit. Um, and we have the board has ultimate responsibility for the company's fight against climate change. So approving, supervising, reporting on its climate action plan to achieve um, climate neutrality by 2050. And we asked our shareholders at the AGM in June um, to approve our climate action uh, policy and um, that reform of the Articles of Association. Um, like Mark, I highlight, highlight two things that I think are really critical. One is, and one of the other companies um, I've sat on, um, one of the committees I chaired was responsible for workforce engagement. Uh, this was an ethics and uh, corporate responsibility committee, so the focus was not particularly on, on climate. Um, but engaging the workforce and talking to them about the issues they think matter to them personally and to the, 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 the future of the company's strategy, climate and environmental and social issues come up time and again. So engaging externally with workforce, with shareholders, with wider stakeholders is really important. And the second thing I would say is being confident that you've got inside the executive um, the, the real expertise, perhaps um, headed up by a chief sustainability officer or chief innovation officer, which is what Iberdrola has, who get regular face time uh, with the board. Um, I mentioned blue and um, green uh, hydrogen uh, earlier. Uh, I wouldn't want to be put on the spot to explain all, all, of the, all of the differences, but I'm absolutely confident, having heard a presentation from our innovation officer, they're really on top of this and what it could mean for the company, where are the business opportunities and the, uh, and the risks. So um, engagement and innovation expertise. Mark, anything you'd add? I think again, fully, fully support what uh, what Nicholas said. I mean, I, I think the the whole area of governance uh, uh, for me has been a, has been a top priority, and, and I think again, looking at this holistically, generally speaking, that governance has, has involved slimming down the number of board committees, ensuring clear oversight and accountability for the issues that are of greatest strategic importance to HSBC, and enhancing the links and connectivity to our subsidiaries. The other part of the question in you asked about sort of the skills and expertise of the, of the board. This is something that we we, we keep uh, under constant uh, constant review. The overall composition mix of skills of the board is considered whenever we make changes and also part of, of, of the process of succession planning. But sustainability is certainly an area of growing importance to HSBC and to our stakeholders. And I think going back to, uh, to, to Nicola's point, we don't want to be we don't need to be uh, scientists, but we do need to be able to apply what the scientists and our own experts tell us about our business. Uh, and therefore, we've got to continue to learn and upskill, which we do internally. And, and we uh, uh, we have, uh, in uh, a few months ago, appointed our our first group chief sustainability officer on the, the group executive committee. So again, a senior member of government uh, of, of of the executive uh, 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 at that level. Uh, we're working with external experts and clearly 
uh, also supporting as best we can uh, Chapter Zero, who we think do a do an excellent job in trying to get these messages out to uh, to the non-executive community. Well, I was actually just going to reflect on something similar. I mean, it just seems like the role of Chapter Zero is is, is quite important in this this effort to really sort of skill up as many non-execs as possible. Thank you both so much. Um, I think we'll all remain extremely hopeful going into and coming out of, of COP26 next month. Um, and it's just wonderful to know that, you know, you're seeing the value of having well-informed uh, non-executive directors and chairs on your boards. And I'm sure, um, you know, the the role that Chapter Zero has in continuing to, to educate and inform uh, more uh, non-execs to ensure that the same happens across all companies, uh, both uh, in the UK and and as as we grow through the you know the broader international platform, the Climate Governance Initiative globally as well. So, many thanks to you both um, for um, your your time today. It's been extremely valuable to get your insights. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Emily. Goodbye. Thank and you, Emily. This has been a special podcast in the Business Plan for the Planet series. More episodes will follow shortly, so please do keep an eye out for those. For more information on the programme, visit business.hsbc.com forward slash sustainability. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.